This morning's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 13. You'll find it on page 818 on the Bible under your seat. So Matthew chapter 13, first we'll read verses 1 through 9 and then 18 through 23. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, And immediately they sprang up, but since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And now verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Mike. On behalf of the elders here at Trinity, really glad to have you here. Glad you're joining us this morning to jump into the parables of the kingdom. So it's pretty common here at Trinity, for, for regardless of who's preaching, for there to be a lot of cultural commentary. This morning's not going to be any exception to that. But I did want to bring up a couple books, just because these have been really resonating with me. Now, these are the words of limited human men, right? So they, they do not have access to a perfect vision of what society is like, nor are they writing scripture. But I've found them to, to, to say a lot of really sort of truthy things. They're writing about different places in the world than our own, and so there's much that that doesn't apply, but I'll bring them up because they've really informed a lot of, of my thinking. I think that they um, have, have a, a really scriptural outlook at heart. So the first one, for those of you who are here, maybe you're seeking or you're, or you're skeptical, this is probably going to be the one that's most interesting to you because it's not talking to only the convinced. It's, it's just more sort of descriptive of the time and place that we live in. It's called How Not to Be Secular by Jamie Smith. Really, really good book. Uh, basically, it's just paring down a 1,000-page book by Charles Taylor into 200 pages. The other two books are by Mark Sayers. This is going to be more for, for those of you who are already among the convinced. 
I find him fantastic. Again, he's talking about a different, a different place in the world than our own. There's much that doesn't apply directly here in Lake County, but there's much that is. Disappearing Church, and then this is probably the, the, the one that I really love the most out of the two, Strange Days. Strange Days. So I bring those up only because I'm going to be referencing concepts that show up in, in all three of those books, and, uh, and I found them really helpful. So as we begin, let's, uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, as we jump into the parable of the sower, I ask that you would help us to be receptive to your word, quick to examine ourselves, quick to question our assumptions about ourselves, and that you would make us sensitive to those around us, sensitive to where they may be at as far as the good news is concerned, that you teach us to walk patiently with those around us. We love you, Lord. Amen. So we've decided to subtitle this section of our Matthew series, What People Do With Good News. The Upside Down Kingdom, for for these few weeks, we're calling it What People Do With Good News. And I think the reason why is going to become pretty clear. So last week, we talked about why Jesus tells parables. And what we found out is that one of the the big reasons why Jesus tells parables is is because of what people do with them. It's because of what people do with the parables. The parables sort of almost obscure the truth in a way, right? And and when Jesus does that, when he tells a parable that's kind of obscuring meaning, it does one of two things to the people who are listening. Either they, they, they hear Jesus kind of saying this weird cryptic stuff, and they write him off, like, good grief, that's either insane, it's irrelevant, that's outmoded, whatever, and so they walk away. It reveals what, what they think about Jesus. Other folks, on the other hand, will, will hear these kind of cryptic sayings. They'll be like, man, I need to know what that means. And they're going to press in farther to Jesus. And that group of people are more likely than any to become what we call disciples or apprentices of Jesus. And so the reason why Jesus tells parables, in part, is because of what people do with them. And now this week, we start to dive into the parables themselves, and we realize that this dynamic goes way, way farther. Matthew isn't just trying to get us to think about what people do with parables. He's trying to get us to think about what people do with good news. What do people do with good news? And what we're going to find is that, as it was back then, so it is today. The good news is very polarizing. It forces people to take a side. It challenges the way we see ourselves and the world. What the parable of the sower illustrates for us is that the good news is only really good to those who don't miss it. There are many who hear the good news, and it's not good news to them, right? The good news is only good to those who don't miss it, and we're going to get exposed to four ways of understanding the good news, or or in some cases not understanding the good news. We're going to get exposed to four different ways. And the first one is some people miss the good news because they never try to understand. Let's reread verses 1 through 4. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. So let's imagine the scene for a minute, okay? So Jesus has just stepped away from the crowds to be alone. He's sitting by the sea, but the crowds find him, right? And they keep coming. More and more and more people keep coming to the point where if Jesus is actually going to teach this crowd, he's going to need to reposition himself 
as it stands, he's sort of like at the front, no one can see him, and so he gets into a boat. Gets into the boat and he, he sits down. So he, he takes kind of the, the posture that a rabbi would take if he's about to, to teach. He sits and he begins this parable. And he begins it just by saying, a sower went out to sow. So now here's what sowing would kind of look like in first century Palestine. It was sort of like this. You'd be wearing like a seed bag. It was almost like a sash, really, where you'd sort of pull it over this shoulder. It would hang on, on the opposite waist. You'd hold it open with one hand. With the other, you'd out seeds and, and throw them into the plowed soil, right? So now here's the thing about farming in the first century. It wasn't any more of a random process than it is now. Like sowers knew where to throw the seed, right? Like they, they knew the ground that the seed was supposed to land on. So you wouldn't have a situation of like a sower waking up in the morning like, all right, let's do this, and then just throwing seed in the living room. He's out in the driveway, like on the blacktop. I hope something grows. No, like there was, there was places that they knew of set aside for agriculture, and that's where they would throw the seed, right? So like sowers knew where they wanted crops to grow, and, the, and that's, that's where they would go. So that's the first thing that's so interesting, though, about this parable. This sower isn't doing that. This sower isn't doing that. It's the thing that kind of draws us in right off the bat. Jesus has us asking, what is this guy up to? We quickly realize that that this parable isn't actually about the sower. Not centrally. It's about the soils. Jesus is telling a story about how different soils receive seed. About how different soils receive seed receive seed, how different people receive the gospel. And the first soil that the seed falls onto is the path. So let's get into it, right? Let's, let's, what is it about the path? What, why the path? So let's imagine what the path would have been like. This would have been hard-pressed, trampled ground, like unaccommodating, un, unwelcoming to a seed. A seed wouldn't be able to penetrate it because it's been trodden by so many feet. So for a sower to cast seed on it would just scatter over the surface and eventually become bird feed, right? So that's what we're looking at with the path. And Jesus says that the soil represents the person who doesn't understand the message of the kingdom. When he explains it, he says it this way, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. So what does Jesus mean when he says, these are the people who don't understand the message. So here's the thing. I think Jesus is talking about way more than just like mentally understanding the concept of the gospel, right? Like the difference between the path and any of the other seeds or any of the other soils isn't that the path is dumber, right? Like the the people who don't receive the message of the kingdom, they're, they're not refusing the message because they're more evil than Christians are. They're not more stupid than Christians are. I think there's many reasonable, sincere folks who get the facts straight about Christianity. They're more than capable of mentally piecing together our message, and they still reject it. So I think what Jesus is talking about is that these folks don't understand the message for them. It has no bearing on their lives. It means nothing to them personally. They, they, don't, they don't see it pressing in on them. They don't believe, they don't repent, right? And they don't give it a second thought. I think this population 
this kind of person. I think it's easier to be this sort of person than it has ever been. So there are many scholars and historians who describe our era as a secular age, a secular age, right? And I think this is a good opportunity just to take a, a quick second and sort of talk through what that really means and, and how it really applies to us. Because a secular society actually has some benefits for us, and it has some major, major costs, right? So, so starting out, what's good about living in a secular age? Well, a, a secular age, a secular society is one that, that operates without any sort of reference to religion, Right? So as decisions are being made in government, they're going to take economics in the, as, a, as a factor. They're going to take you know, this or that. They're not going to be taking what any one or other religion says about the topic into, into account because it's the society that's trying to sort of make peace across people who, who disagree with each other. And so I think for a lot of us Christians, we hear the word secular and we sort of think, oh, it just means against Christians. But really it's, it's, it's supposed to be a society that just is sort of ah-religious, just doesn't take religion into, into consideration, right? So you're not going to see prayer happening in schools. You're also not going to get arrested for being a Buddhist, right? Like th- those two things both will not happen in a secular society. And here's why that's kind of good. In a secular society, you ideally get a good amount of religious freedom. One of my profs at Trinity used to bring up how Coptic Christians in Egypt would often talk about how they're longing for secular society, because if they could get into secular society, they wouldn't be killed for their faith. The difference is that it's the Islamic State over them, right? So in their case, they're longing for a situation where government can, be, can operate apart from religion, and religion then can operate apart from the government. So that's the good part. But there's a cost, and perhaps especially for Christianity. Because here's the thing, when you completely remove religion from government, and again, I'm not, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I'm just pointing out what ends up happening, faith becomes individualized. It becomes privatized. It becomes something that's between me and myself, and maybe God, if I think there's a God, right? But it becomes highly, highly individualized. And there's a lot of reasons for this. But folks are becoming increasingly suspicious of institutional religion. But it's not individual enough. And in particular, they're, they're becoming suspicious of Christianity. They're sort of reacting against Christianity. Christianity has become sort of associated with power and with patriarchy. And so they sort of react against the religion as a whole, the way teenagers react against their parents, right? Like, what do they know anymore, right? That we're kind of getting a little bit of that. Christianity is getting a little bit of that. This reaction against us. Something similar is happening culturally. One author puts it this way, 100 years ago, it was almost impossible not to believe in the Christian faith. Now it is almost impossible to believe, and the reasons why are cultural. In some ways, it's now socially advantageous to be atheist, to be a spiritualist, to hold to one of the Eastern religions, the denomination of Buddhism or one of the Hindu faiths. Because it sort of marks you out as a free thinker. But to return to the way of Jesus is to return to the patriarchy. To return to the way of Jesus is to return to the colonizing powers. To return to the way of Jesus is to return to the status quo, to return to the ways of your fuddy-duddy parents. It's to return to something that, you know, I thought we already ruled out. And so when we 
go out to announce the way of Jesus. We will be announcing it to a group of people who largely believe they understand Christianity but don't. And they will often reject it just because it's Christianity. It will be as difficult for the gospel to penetrate into their hearts as it is for the seed to penetrate into the path. And so, as Christians, we believe that operating behind this world are dark powers. And this cultural moment plays into their hands. The birds come up and they snatch away the message. I'm not trying to bum you guys out. Just want to be honest, right? Some people miss the good news because they never try to understand. And so I'll just add, I think we need to be sensitive to that and aware of that as we go out and announce the message. I've been learning a lot. Personally, I'm going off book here. So, but anyways, I've been learning a lot personally about just realizing that folks will think they understand the message when they really don't and just trying to be patient. I'm not going to force the message when they don't want to hear it. But I'll, I will look for opportunity. And otherwise, I'll just love them. And I've found opportunity and found these really powerful moments where I, they sort of become reintroduced to Christianity and realize that they have no idea what it's about. It's been this, this cool little moment that I've seen a number of times at Hansa or at Tighthead or any number of places in the area. So we've just talked about soil that's you know, symbolizing folks who never really identify with God's people, but we should notice that the other soils, they're actually about people who at one time or other identify with God's people. They're insiders. So second soil, some people will miss the good news because things are too difficult. Verses 5 through 6. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. When the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. So Jesus continues the story, and he tells us that some seed falls onto rocky soil. So this is very, very shallow soil. Maybe it's peppered with stones or something, or it could be like that really kind of thin layer of dirt above like a whole bed of limestone or shale. It doesn't really matter. The point is that the roots can't get down very far. And if the roots can't get down very far, then there's no way that that plant's going to get moisture. It's not going to get enough moisture to to grow, and it's especially not going to get enough moisture to withstand that moment where the sun rises and starts pulling moisture out of the plant. It's just going to wither up, right? So we've got this plant on rocky soil, and this is actually talking about somebody who does receive the message, right? They hear it. They're, they're pumped about it. They, they, they like what they're hearing. But Jesus says they have no root. Some translations will actually translate no root in themselves. So here's the, the second part of, of Jesus explaining it. He says, What was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So what's Jesus getting at? I think he means that these folks have faith without conviction. They don't have the kind of faith that endures. Like we've been talking about for many years, being Christian kind of made life easier in some ways in our country, right? Like, most everyone you knew was Christian. So being Christian kind of made you fit in. 
right? You felt like you were kind of going along with the, the grain of the universe in some ways, you know? Like everything was kind of going your way. There was, there, there was a lot of stuff around you that was sort of, whether it was, it was movies from the 1950s that were sort of just implicitly endorsing your faith or whatever, it brought you together culturally to be Christian. It was, it was pretty comfortable. But now we're seeing something different. It's not as comfortable to be Christian. And in general, folks are looking for a spirituality that will be comfortable. They're looking for therapeutic religion, a therapeutic faith. So it's like if I'm going to believe in a religion of any kind, it's going to be one that, that sort of helps me cope. It's going to be one that affirms me as a person, makes me feel empowered. It, it's going to, it, you know, sometimes I think commonly it sort of gives me a little bit of individuality, right? It's like I want a faith that makes me stand out. We have what Ray Bradbury once termed a, a spiritual delicatessen, like a spiritual deli going on here in the United States where folks sort of pick and choose, and they make a sandwich, right? You know, so we, we get together, we make a sandwich. I want a spirituality that fits my sandwich. I want to feel like I am part of something significant and attractive. And there are a lot of Christian churches and Christian leaders that see that, and they try to adapt by making our faith more comfortable. They try to adapt by making it cool. They try to adapt by making it something you want to identify with because it'll make your life easier. It'll make you fit in more. It'll make you more relevant. Now, here's the thing. There's a lot about Jesus that will help you through hard times. Absolutely. And I think there's a lot about Jesus that in our cultural moment is really easy to find attractive. Like when I tell people about the justice of the kingdom— in our kind of cultural moment, it like affirms things that they're about and challenges things that they're about. And, and almost across the board, folks are into it. They're like, man, I would, I would consider that. But we can't miss what's also very difficult. We shouldn't expect Christianity to be cool. We shouldn't expect it to never challenge us and the reason why is because Jesus asks everything of us. We live in this hyper-individualized kind of age, right? It's not popular to follow a master who will tell you what to do with your time. He will tell us what to do with our money. He will tell us what to do with our bodies and with our relationships. Jesus literally tells us to come and die. And we of all people, the ones who are following him should be very intimately in touch with how terrifying that is. And we're already insiders. Almost every one of the 12 apostles were slaughtered at the hands of those they evangelized. Christianity is in this moment where it's becoming very stigmatized in certain sectors, not all, certain sectors of our country. It's becoming very stigmatized. And I think here in, in the more affluent parts of Lake County, that is one of those sectors. I think many of us feel that. So following Jesus comes down to this act of, of conviction in some ways. It's agreeing to walk with him, come what may. And if we aren't reaching down deep into the grace of Christ, if our roots aren't locked into the way of Jesus and what he has done for this, then this culture will full-on colonize us. And we will wither. Some people miss the good news because things are too difficult. And then some miss it because things are too easy. Verse 7. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up 
and choked them. So in this verse, Jesus is describing seed that right, falls among thorns, but what happens here? So what happens is the seed gets down in it, it actually finds enough soil to, to get moisture, right? So the plant's, plant's growing, but as it comes up, growing with it are thorns that are begin to sort of spiral around it and, and choke it. And so as it starts to grow, it has to grow against all the resistance, all the additional weight of those thorns. And so in some sense, it's trying to grow while taking all those thorns with it. And eventually it gets choked out. It can't actually continue to grow and take the thorns with it. And between the rocky soil and the thorny soil, I think the thorny soil might be the one that's most dangerous to us in our cultural moment. Let's read Jesus' description or explanation, I should say, of of this moment. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So I see sort of two major ways in which this applies to us. There's the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. And I'm going to take them in reverse order just to be obnoxious. So the first one, I think, relates most to pleasure. To pleasure. And the second one to achievement. So pleasure first. We live in this moment of incredible wealth. And I'm not just talking about like, you know, we hear incredible wealth and we think about the 0.1%, right? The super wealthy. But on a global scale, I'm super wealthy, right? I'm super wealthy. So when I think about this, like, just take what I'm likely going to do today. So most likely after church today, my family's going to go out to eat at one of the many Libertyville establishments here in town, Probably going to be Fodrax. The food will come to us pretty quickly. The restaurant will be clean. And here's the thing. If I didn't want to go to a restaurant, and if I knew how to operate a phone, like many members in my generation seem able to operate a phone, I could actually go back to my apartment, and I could order food using what they call an app. And apparently it works that if you do this, that somebody will bring food to your apartment. That's like a live option for me just to be at home and have someone buzz me in and I just, like, answer the door in a bathrobe or something. This is a live option for me. So then, let's say the kids go down for a nap. I have a couple choices now. I could binge watch a show on Netflix or maybe I swing by Hansa and I could have someone make me a cup of coffee or, or whatever. Or let's say I get a materialistic kick this evening, right? Many of you notice I essentially wear the same thing all the time. Let's say... <laughs> Let's say I tire of that, and I decide that I want a change. So I, I could go on Amazon, or if I really, really wanted to feel good about myself, I could go on any number of boutique websites, or I could order like a mail subscription box service to be, again, delivered directly to my door. And stylish clothing, I could like try it on, then pack it away and send it back and have this whole exchange. I would never have to leave my apartment. And while I'm at it, I don't have to look another person in the face. Which means I don't have to love. I don't have to be challenged to think of myself as any less powerful than all this convenience leads me to believe. I can distract away any sense of need. I can distract away any sense of loneliness. I can distract away any thought about my flaws. I can distract away the gnawing sense that life might actually be more than food and the body more than clothes. I can live for means 
and forget the ends. These things we have are incredible blessings. Like, I can jump on Skype and talk to somebody miles away that I would otherwise entirely lose touch with. I can be exposed to art and film and music that I would otherwise have no access to. I can see the sufferings and the joys of people on the other side of the globe. It expands my perspective. I can organize meals to be brought to people using, again, an app, and it'll be faster and, and more efficient than, than ever before. These are, these are blessings, But the same technology, the same conveniences, the same pleasures that are such a blessing to us can also be curses. They give us the option to hide from our insecurities. They give us the option to hide from what we were really made to be and to drown ourselves in pleasure. It has never been easier to be numb. That's the deceitfulness of riches. Now for the cares of the world. Some folks say that we live in an an achievement culture. So whether or not you're you're a very achievement-driven person, I think most of us sense this sort of nagging anxiety that that we aren't living up to some standard that we're supposed to be living up to, right? I'm not extraordinary enough. I, I, I haven't gotten the right job or the right living situation, or my my town isn't cool enough, or whatever. I'm not rising high enough, and if I am rising, it's not fast enough. And it's sort of this anxiety that that just never gives us rest, that we're meant to live up to something, and we're not quite sure what it is. It's very vague, but we know that we have to achieve to get there. And this anxiety might actually be more dangerous for those who actually do get to achieve. Here's the thing. Work is a gift. Achievement is not bad, right? Like, oftentimes, throughout the biblical story, God will, will bring achievement into, into the lives of his people as a blessing and as, like, a platform for witness. We see this across the book of Daniel, for instance. But here in our context, achievement is a way of validating myself. That, like, if I achieve a lot, suddenly I'm worth more, not just in a financial way, but like me, As a person, I become worth more in my own mind if I achieve a lot. It validates me. It's a badge of honor. It's a way of saying my life matters. And for those of us who who are, who are still wanting to rise, I think it probably goes for all of us in this culture, we think if I can just accumulate that accomplishment, then then I'll be done. I'll, I'll end the rat race. I can finally rest. But there's always another rung on that ladder. And this can start to conflict with the gospel real fast. Because here's the thing. The message of the scriptures is that it is a weighty thing to be human. It's a noble thing to be human. That humans were meant to cooperate with God, to live in dependence on him, and to achieve. Not in the way that we define that but to achieve by bringing the glory of God more and more into this world through our work and through our relationships, all in dependence on him. But we aren't a very dependent country. We're a very independent country. Declaration of independence, right? At the beginning, it was when humans sought power and achievement for their own fame. 
It was when they did that that they turned away from the very thing that gave us worth and glory in the first place. And now here in Matthew, we're we're seeing as Jesus arrives, and he announces rest to the weary, grace to the sinful. He invites people into a way of life that doesn't deny our shame and failure. It faces it head on, because it's only in facing our shame and failure head on that we can actually then turn away from it. And turn to the mercy of God. The gospel was sweet to the tax collectors, prostitutes, and pimps. But it was bitter to the CEOs. It was bitter to the National Honor Society members. It was bitter to the clergy. It was bitter to the culturally elite. It was bitter to the cool. Because in identifying with Jesus, they were going to have to identify with weakness. In our achievement culture... We want to be anything but weak. Here's the thing with the the gospel. It doesn't just push back against our sort of achievement activity. We don't sort of step away from that activity into passivity, right? The gospel isn't a passive message. The message of the kingdom isn't a passive message. And so it challenges our, our laziness. It doesn't Jesus doesn't come so that we can be sort of like a different kind of couch potato, right? He comes so that we can become a different kind of human. He saves us from the penalty of sin, and as if that wasn't enough, he saves us from the future presence of sin and the new creation. But if, as if that wasn't enough, he saves us from the power of sin and actually includes us in the process of extending the beauty of the kingdom into this world. It's tough to walk with Jesus in hard times. Absolutely. It can be brutal to trust God when he seems silent, even harder when trusting him is the very thing that you're taking flack for in the first place. One thing that the hard times will do, often, is push you to your limits and throw you on the love and grace of Christ. Hard times can serve your faith as much as hurt it, but Jesus makes it clear it is easier for a camel to walk through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Our situation, for our faith, things might be hardest when things are easiest. For our faith, things might be hardest when things are easiest. So some people will miss the good news because they never try to understand, some because things are too difficult, others because they're too easy, but some will understand, and they'll bear fruit. Verses 8 and 9. Other seeds fell on the good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. I'd like to jump directly to the explanation. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. In other words, right? it to themselves, understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, in another thirty. So Jesus says that some folks will receive the good news, they'll repent and believe. So those are terms that have come up recently in, in some of our past sermons, so you guys remember that. And what's the result of that? It's, kind of, it's a kind of productivity. They bear fruit. There's a kind of productivity that, that takes place. With Christianity, like acceptance from God doesn't happen because of your works. Your works happen because of your acceptance by God, right? The order is reversed. So I'll say that again. Acceptance from God doesn't happen because of your works. Your works happen because you've been accepted by God. 
But for some of us, we hear this part, and we still say, like, okay, yeah, I've, I've trusted in Jesus. Where else am I going to turn, right? But I've all, and I've also repented. Why would I want to go back to my old way? I'm, I'm shrugging off those old habits and following Jesus. Those old ways never got me anything anyways. I don't want to go back. But I'm also no super saint, right? Like, I still look at my life and think, sure, there's some movement, but shouldn't I be, like, changing lives and, like, just doing TED Talks that basically are blowing people away? And, like, shouldn't we, we get caught in, like, a whole new achievement culture. It's just a baptized achievement culture. And we start thinking, like, I need to be, you know, whatever. And so that, that's what, what's amazing about how Jesus presents this. Notice that the crop yields are different. It's not one-size-fits-all discipleship. The crop yields are different, some 100, some 60, some 30. Now, here's the thing that's also very important for us to notice. These aren't like extraordinary yields either. Like one commentator points out, the yield of 30-fold is on the low side of normal. <laughs> like 60 is like, oh, okay, that's normal. And then 100-fold is literally like, awesome. And that's it. It's not like, I need to write all my friends. It's just... Like, okay, that was a really good yield, right? Like, Jesus is, is, is saying that, that, that the way that we think about discipleship is, is, is still based more on achievement than on his grace. And instead, we have to be sensitive to, to the moment we're in in our discipleship and the moment that folks are around us in their discipleship. It isn't some standard you meet. It's a day-by-day leaning forever on God's grace as he changes you into the person he made you to be. It's not a rat race. We may be enculturated into the culture of achievement, but God is not. Jesus' yoke is easy, and his burden is light. And So we follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. And sow seeds. Sow seeds. Because here's something that happens in a secular society. We all begin to feel this sort of pressure. The sense that whatever I believe is contestable. Right? That there's sincere, reasonable folk who don't think like I do. We begin to feel this sort of pressure, and then we begin to think we're alone in feeling it. But the truth is, as Jamie Smith says, the doubter's doubt is faith. We're not the only ones who are living in this secular world, and there's a whole bunch of other people who are haunted. They are haunted by faith. They are haunted by the sense that there's got to be something beyond what I can touch and smell and sense. Take the first soil, the path. Some will be hard and resistant, probably a majority. But others will feel the bankruptcy, the void left over by secularization. And they will long for meaning. They will long for fullness. And they'll wonder if there's a way of seeing the world that makes sense of beauty. They'll wonder if things really aren't as they seem. Maybe there really is more. They'll ask if maybe they've taken too much for granted. And in encountering Jesus, they will encounter the thing that they had long ago ruled out, but never stopped hoping for, transcendence. Something beyond this. Take the second soil, the rocky soil. Some will fall away because Christianity isn't fun and easy anymore, but others will actually be longing to find a cross to pick up. 
When there's nothing beyond the meaning I make for myself, then nothing is really worth more than my health, my survival, and the survival of those I love. But some will see how shallow a life that is, and they will be dying to find something worth dying for. And Jesus' call will be a call for them to find their lives by losing them. It will be an encounter with meaning. Soil three, the thorny soil. Many even now are starting to wake up and realize that our consumeristic culture is bloating us. That even being a minimalist isn't going to bring them relief from the constant anxiety of living in our time because they're still just living for their own satisfaction and they're, they're thinking that the amount of goods I have, if I can just get that equilibrium right, then I'll be satisfied. It's still focused on the goods. And in Christ, they will hear the ultimate call to adventure, a way of finding satisfaction by actually laying our satisfaction to the side. Our cultural moment is telling us to buy without end, to rise without limits, to achieve endlessly, to accumulate endlessly. We are being pumped with an anesthetic, and Jesus is the thing that will wake us up. And still others will receive the word. They will bear fruit. Some a hundredfold. Some sixty. Some thirty. Him who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that, that you would make us sensitive to our cultural moment. That we would not define ourselves by by what we take for granted in our culture, but that we would follow your way and have the faith to realize that it really is the way to genuine humanness, that it really is the way to to truth, goodness, and beauty. Lord, I pray that we would find our delight in you. I pray, Lord, that we would find our joy in you that we would lean into you and into your people around us. And with each step, I pray that you would enamor us with the way of life that you've invited us into, not because we're awesome, but because you are. And by your grace, Lord, I pray that you would invite others